I will trust Brexit focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Podcast, the Brexit Focus Podcast. This is the fourth in our series. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined by our Brexit expert, Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? It's all good. Today we're going to follow the usual format. We're going to have a conversation about Brexit Watch, what's happened over the last month. Yet again, another busy month in Brexit land. Have a couple of Brexit interviews and then near the end Paul's going to update us on an answer to your Brexit question. But first of all we have to thank our funders. This project is funded through the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland and Hollywell Trust receives core funding through the Community Relations Council, Derry City and Strabane District Council and we get money as well from the Ireland Funds and the Department for Foreign Affairs. As I mentioned there, it's been very busy. There's negotiations are ongoing. It is. So practicalities coming a wee bit clearer, particularly for businesses? Absolutely, yeah. We're learning more and more and it's not necessarily good news for our region. Mm. Uh, One of the things that uh, hit the headlines is the fact that Unilever, which is a Dutch and British company, is in future going to be a Dutch company. Mm. And it's moving half of its headquarters, which is in London, over to Rotterdam. They say that's not just about Brexit. They they did say before the Brexit referendum that's what they would do if Mm. there was Brexit. But they're saying this isn't down to Brexit. It's just about simplifying the corporate structure. But what we also know is a number of other European businesses that have sourced goods from the United Kingdom will not do so in the future. And actually, we touch on that in a small local scale in one of the interviews today. Okay. Uh, but the, the truth is that companies that have used to buy uh, from the UK to supply into, say, Germany or France or the Netherlands, they're thinking, well, we're not quite sure what's going to happen after Brexit, so we will simplify our supply chain and we'll buy from elsewhere. And you can see also some interesting investments taking place. So mm. It looks as if Cork Port, for example, is going to expand because there's going to be more trade between Cork and Rotterdam and Antwerp with Irish goods going out that way and others coming in that way, you know, avoiding going through Britain. It also mm-hmm. means there'll be less trade going through Larne and more going through Rotterdam, Antwerp and Cork ports and Dublin as well to a lesser extent. And those ports are all being lined up for expansion. So we can see the way the trade will move and, you know, Mm. some trade that would have gone through Northern Ireland in the past won't do so in the future. Scary news or potentially scary news for Irish households as well? That's right, yes. Uh, The Irish Economic and Social Research Institute has done some analysis of what it expects the impact of Brexit to be on Irish households. And it's come up with figures of, very precise figures for such an estimate, (laughs) but it's a very precise figures of between €892 and €1,360 per year, per household, cost through higher costs in terms of the things you buy, food products, household goods, etc. But of course, for many people in this area, if they work in Derry and they're paid in sterling, and actually they have to pay a mortgage in euros, they've already probably lost more than that because basically it's, you know, more expensive to service your euro mortgage when you're being paid in sterling, which is now worth less than it was before Brexit. I'm in that camp, so I know exactly (laughs) what you're talking about, and I've been feeling Brexit already, even though it hasn't had us yet. Hilarious news about the production of future UK passports after Brexit. Well, that's right, yes. I mean, this whole thing that, uh, you know, we really wanted blue passports. Well, actually... Uh, didn't anyone tell the UK government you could have done that anyway? You didn't have to leave the European Union to have a blue passport. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's not actually a requirement of European Union membership to have a red passport. Uh, and now, just to make things worse for uh, Brexiteers, they actually the contract's gone out to France, so they're not going to be printed in Britain anyway. Uh, 
that's well, that's topical of Brexit. Okay, uh, some more news about the the level of cross border crossings on the island as well. Yeah, which is quite uh, quite significant. I mm. mean, the the analysis previously had been that there'd be about thirty thousand crossings a day. In actual fact, according to the latest Northern Ireland Civil Service analysis, it might be a quarter of a million people crossing the border each day. You know, once you take into account the rail journeys, the bus journeys, mm. the the, uh, the fact that you've got passengers in the cars, and the fact that a lot of the crossings take p- place over the minor roads, you know, because yeah. we've got, what was it, about 300 or so uh, yeah. border crossings north to south. Uh, actually, it's a, around a quarter of a million people every day that cross the border, which is, you know, if those, figures, if those figures are correct, mm. that is a real shock, actually. And it shows just the extent to which, if you did have a hard border, it would be disruptive. Even if you're thinking of stopping a percentage of those people as they cross for checks, it's... Well, that's right. I mean, what we do know from the latest uh, negotiations is that uh, the common travel area pretty certainly will stay in place. So it'll be freedom of movement for people. Mm. But, you know, there's not necessarily freedom of movement for the goods goods that you're taking with you. So, you know, if you go back to the foot of mouth uh, period, you know, those of us who are buying goods you know buying produce buying dairy products or meat in you know a supermarket in the north and yeah. traveling over to the south we'd get stopped you know because you weren't allowed to take those goods so we still don't know even assuming that there is freedom of movement for people we don't know what that means in terms of potential disruption in terms of the things you're carrying over the border i think that's reflected in the state of negotiations that have taken place in the last week and the potential backstop agreement that might be in place yeah, I mean, broadly, I mean, although there's been headlines around this, things haven't really changed from last December, which mm. is that there is a backstop there. Uh, and the backstop is that there will be an open border in north to south. That will be achieved in one of two ways. Either there will be a basically a customs union between the UK and the European Union, which means there's no need to deal with things that cross the border, or else Northern Ireland will have a regulatory alignment with the European Union, which basically means the, a, a special deal, perhaps, for Northern Ireland. Mm. But no, nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. So even though there's a backstop agreement there that supposedly means it will be in place, if there is no Brexit-negotiated outcome, then we're back to where we were with, you know, who knows what that means. So our Brexiteer friends have been out and about and visible in the public eye in the last week or so? Yeah, that's right. The television news have been uh, capturing Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg throwing dead fish into the River Thames, yes. Mm. And the point that they're making is, I mean, what we do know still about the negotiations is that... um, there is an extension of de facto European Union membership. You know, mm-hmm. Although we will be leaving in March next year, in practice, it won't actually mean that we're leaving until the end of December 2020. So mm-hmm. basically, it's 2021 that we really leave because all the rules will continue to be in place. And what Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg are unhappy about is that during that process, that interim process before we fully leave the UK will not leave the Common Fisheries Agreement so that uh, basically British and Northern Irish um, fisher people will not be able to say, well, it's our waters, it's not their waters, you know, so they will still be competing with Spanish and Swedish and uh, uh, Danish uh, boats to capture fish Mm. in waters off the coast here. And the same tariffs and restrictions and stuff will still be in place. That's right, yes. There was a an important EU Parliament vote, I think it was on Monday of last week. That's right, yes. I mean, this is quite significant. Um, in the end, it might not mean anything, 
Um, but the final outcome of the negotiations between the European Union and the United Kingdom has to be approved by the European Parliament. And the European Parliament has passed a resolution saying what it wants to be included in the final decision. Mm -hmm. uh, at the heart of this is acceptance of the Good Friday Agreement, no change to that. Uh, it's keen that there's a continued membership of the internal market and the customs union. Um, and also, it's saying that uh, basically all the human rights that we have in Northern Ireland, which touches on, for example, the European health insurance certificates, things like that, mm -hmm. uh, things like that will continue to be available. Also, uh, according to interpretation, it might well mean also that people who live in Northern Ireland who have European uh, passports would continue to have the right to vote in European parliamentary elections. Nice. And broadly, that's what they're saying. However, 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 mm, it's uh, it's, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it is very unlikely that the United Kingdom government could accept that resolution, at least while Theresa May is prime minister and at least while they are continued on their path of leaving both the customs union and the single market. But having said that, it is still possible, and this needs to be stressed, it is still possible we will stay within the customs union because the House of Commons will have a vote at some point mm -hmm. and it may decide actually that it's not happy with the UK government's process and it's not happy with how it's negotiating and it wants the uk to stay within the customs union we don't even know whether we're going to stay in the customs union or leave paul thank you very much for that update and you were busy as well because you've had two interviews over the last week or so uh one with william taylor who's the northern ireland coordinator of farmers for action um the other with Kamal Scarpello from Scarpello Bakery. Yes, because the farming and food industry locally is a very important one. And there's two particular issues facing the, the, the farming and food sector. One mm. is the subsidies through the common agricultural policy are very important in terms of farmers' incomes. Mm. Um, and we don't really know the extent to which farmers who are in this area, who depend on them, will continue to receive those subsidies. I mean, the, one point that, uh, that the former finance minister, Martin O'Muller, has made repeatedly is that while Northern Ireland receives almost 10% of the UK share of the common agricultural policy payments, it only has about 3% of the UK population. Mm. So it we may well be that if in future, under the UK government's new subsidy arrangements, we get the you know the Northern Ireland share yeah. basically it could mean that farmers only get a third of the subsidies that they get at the moment, and that's assuming that the same principles underlying the subsidies apply in the future as apply uh, currently. Uh, the other thing which is really important to understand is the impact on food production because a lot of food during the production process goes backwards and forwards across the border. Now, yeah. Hollywood Trust had the presentation from Tony Connolly a few weeks ago, and his book, uh, Brexit in Ireland, makes the point very clear that there's an awful lot of going backwards and forwards you know, during the life of production. You know? yeah. So you, you go to the north one bit, you go to the south for the next bit of the production process, and it goes back to the north. What's going to happen? How do you deal with those cross-border mm. processes? So that is also a, a big issue. And actually, you know, in Derry, we've got uh, one of the big food producers just down the road here, like Patrick's. It's... Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, got three operating bases, one in Monaghan, one just outside of Straban, and one in Coleraine. So how's it going to deal with things? And how are other businesses like that? We, we were hoping to get Luckpatrick to talk us, but we, we weren't successful. Mm. Uh, but we did manage to get both uh, William Taylor, as you say, from Farmers for Action, who I declare an interest. I've, I've done work for them in producing a report on farm prices mm. in the past. And we also had uh, Kamal Scapello from Scapello Bakery uh, talk to us. I'm out in the beautiful County Derry countryside between Limavady and Coleraine, where the birds can be heard in the sky. And in front of me is William Taylor, who's the Northern Ireland coordinator of Farmers for Action. William, what is Farmers for Action? Farmers for Action um, was born out of the fuel strike in 2000. Those of us who are old enough to remember back to then will remember that it was in actual fact a number of farmers mostly that came together on the price of fuel at that time and our chairman um, who was one of the leading lights in the fuel strike David Hanley after the fuel strike the following year they set up Farmers for Action in the thought process that farmers needed help with farm gate prices just as the general public needed help with the price of fuel that we could do something similar for farm gate prices in other words have a strike Back then we did have a go at that. I became a member of Farmers for Action and Northern Ireland Coordinator in uh, 2003 and we did attempt to have a strike across the UK back then and also I think in 2005 but we soon formed the opinion that farmers are not militant minded. They are individual family farmers and they like to look after their own home turf and get their job done. So therefore progress and time has taken us down a different route to try and sort out the situation of poor and atrocious farm gate prices. And so your focus is that farmers, in your view, don't get the prices that they should get for products? Well, absolutely not. And this is costing Northern Ireland as well as other regions in the UK dearly, as in we're not getting the wealth distribution that we should be. The shops in our towns and cities would well benefit from and all the other um, 123 suppliers that supply farmers. So explain to me, explain to us what the state of uh, farming is like at the moment in the border areas of Ireland. Well in the border areas of course you can understand with Brexit that concern I think is uppermost in their minds, the uncertainty of what is going to happen. It's got to be said that We were in a good place while we were part of the EU. It's not everybody's cup of tea and it certainly needs fixing. But as opposed to being out of the EU and facing Westminster to try and get things done is creating a big question for us in Farmers for Action, certainly. Explain to listeners uh, where you're at in terms of profitability and prices. I mean, how dependent are you on subsidies through the Common Agricultural Policy and to what extent do market prices actually reflect your costs? Well subsidies are now being misused and not allowed to carry through the purpose intended which is to support rural communities across the EU. Um, In actual fact what has happened now that active farmers who are receiving subsidies find that their money is being hijacked by the corporate food retailers and corporate food wholesalers and corporate food processors um, by way of um, poor farm gate prices. 
it's no coincidence that virtually every commodity grown on Northern Ireland farms virtually would need a 40% increase minimum to even break even. So let's just get this absolutely clear for people listening. What you're saying is that the impact of common agricultural policy subsidies is felt not by the, uh, by the farmers, in effect, but actually by the, the wholesalers and supermarkets, that actually, because you have that income from the subsidies, you actually have to sell at below market prices to the wholesalers and to the supermarkets. That is the way it has worked out due to their enormous purchasing power. And indeed, in the past, in what's called the Common Agricultural Review in Brussels before the 2015-21 cap period, which we're now in, Farmers for Action, being a member of Fairness for Farmers in Europe, 10 other farm organisations across these islands, put the case to Brussels to save them £100 in subsidy money and put in place legislation on farm gate prices. We actually told them, look, keep the subsidy money. Otherwise, if you're going to continue with it, send the cheque straight to the retailers. No point in wasting your time laundering it through the farmers, giving everybody a hard time. So if farmers are so dependent, in effect, on common agricultural policy subsidies, why did so many farmers vote for Brexit? Uh, That is, in in Northern Ireland's case, um, well, as you know, we actually finished up voting to stay in. However, there were a lot of farmers voted to leave, and, and certainly across the UK also. Basically, the UK, and maybe Northern Ireland in particular, gets accused of gold-plating rules that come from Brussels. Um, I've been to Brussels many times, and I have found that there is certainly, they are reasonable when it comes to the definition of rules that are to be applied. But when they get to Northern Ireland, it seems that our top civil servants delight in gold-plating rules, which I'm sure at the bottom of all the layers of bureaucracy, there seems to be an advantage for them to do this. And this was, the, this was the only door that the farmers could get to kick at. And as it turned out, it wasn't a good door to kick at. But that is our opinion of why so many of them wished to vote to leave. And now, as we find, as we knew anyway, it's not going to make any difference to the red tape that's going to be coming down the route to in, the farmer's door. In other words, the, the UK government and, and through them the Northern Ireland government, uh, civil servants, will actually decide to continue a bureaucratic approach to the application of the subsidy regime and of course we don't know the extent to which you will continue to receive subsidies at the level that the European Union provided them. Well absolutely Michael Gove has has indicated that um, subsidies uh, after we leave Brexit and or after we leave Europe and if we do that they will be environmental environmentally related which is fine but again we're heading into the down the bureaucracy route where it's a, a carrot and stick approach where uh, they've got something to hold the farmer to account with um, and, and yet um, all of them ignoring the elephant in the room which is that the farmer has to get properly paid for his produce. And of course the former finance minister for Northern Ireland, uh, Martin Muller, has said uh, when I've interviewed him that you cannot expect that farmers in Northern Ireland will continue to get the same size of pot of any future subsidies because Basically, farmers have had a much larger percentage of the UK's share of farming subsidies than the population of Northern Ireland. So if the new regime is more reflective of the breakdown between the four nations of the United Kingdom in terms of the, you know, the percentage of uh, uh, subsidy that's received, then farmers may well receive significantly less than, than you do at the moment. Well, I, I would agree. I think that that would appear to be on the cards. And... Um 
certainly the influence of agriculture in Westminster as opposed to the influence of agriculture in Brussels you have to always remember is is on a totally different scale it shouldn't be but it is it's always quoted that agriculture in the UK represents 0.7% of the total economy but what people shouldn't forget is that 57% going 60% of all the transport on our roads are food so when it comes to tonnage of actual goods uh, then farming takes a a totally different um, uh, situation on the league tables of of, um, the worth of its uh, output to the country. Now so we are where we are whatever we think about the Brexit decision I mean clearly farmers in particular have to prepare for Brexit with all the uncertainty I mean how are you preparing as a farmer for Brexit? I suppose fortunately uh, or unfortunately because we maybe know too much shall we say in that we know the inside track and we have got to a stage now where we can read the politicians like a book and the bottom line is that Westminster's first priority is the city of London and I mean they already uh, leaked that information just the day after Brexit or soon after certainly the, the day after the referendum um, and, and, and it's still the case indeed it has come out in recent weeks so if you look at Brexit along those lines, that they will do whatever it takes to keep the City of London at the front of the financial institutions. Perhaps in the fallout, that may mean, and, and hopefully, that we will finish up with some sort of um, customs union and, and access to the single market, which it, it is the best of a bad outcome. Um, and yet, I'm a great believer in what Vince Cable says sometimes, and he has quoted that back a few months ago, he said we can now see a way that perhaps we will stay in the EU. Now, these things uh, depend on what's going to happen when the House of Commons has its vote, which has been put down by Anna Soubry, uh, the Conservative Party backbencher, who's been lobbying for the UK to stay within the Customs Union. It looks as if the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and the SNP will all support that. We don't know what the outcome is. It may well be that Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK stays within the Customs Union and therefore we have open borders with the South. But equally, it's quite possible that we will be outside of the customs union and that, you know, that's basically what Theresa May as Prime Minister has been pushing for, a solution that's without being in the customs union. Potentially that means a hard border. What impact would that be for you and your members as for, for you know, Farms for Action members? Well, I think our farming organisation and others, um, we've got to stand up to this once it becomes clear exactly what route Theresa May is headed down. We do not want a border between North and South, neither do we want a border between East and West. Why should we go backwards? We are not for going backwards, we are going to go forwards. So therefore we are going to have to exert our uh, influence, be that by protest or whichever way. But that day is going to come very shortly, indeed if the vote in Westminster goes the wrong way or if things start to look as if they're going the wrong way. At the minute it's fair to say we did have progress in December by way of regulatory alignment, which is something that took the pressure off a lot of businesses. By which you mean the phase one agreement where basically the UK said whatever happens there will be regulatory alignment with the South, but now in the current state of negotiations it looks as if they're backsliding away if they can from that position. Well absolutely you you would get the impression that they're trying to backslide away but Theresa May's got to face the facts that when 27 nations say that you promised and you said you've got to be held to account then I think 
they're going to get a reminder very shortly. So your focus is, well, preventing a hard border, protesting against any moves to create difficulties between trading either north-south or east-west. But look at the worst case. In terms of your planning and the fears that the sector has, I mean, what would happen if there were barriers between north-south trading, a hard border, and what would happen to your members? Because a lot of your members will be supplying dairy produce, for example, to organisations that trade both north and south. I mean, how, how would they cope? For farmers on the border, it's obviously that little bit more difficult. But at the end of the day, do remember, we have always said, whether the referendum uh, to stay in the EU uh, went in favour or against, farmers were still left facing the supermarkets. And, and that is what's always worth of remembering in all the discussions about Brexit and, and other things. The farmer is still facing the supermarkets. Therefore, we go round in a circle and, and, and for us, the most important thing, dare I say it, number one, is legislation on farm gate prices must come, whether we stay in the EU or whether we leave. And we certainly hope that we stay in the EU. And, uh, you know, we have, to direct, we have to address farm incomes. So in other words, there are two immediate challenges here. One is the processing of food north-south and the impact on businesses that uh, actually have operations on both north and south of the border. But the other issue which you, your organisation is particularly concerned with is to ensure that farmers receive adequate payment for the goods that you produce. And your point is that, by implication, if the subsidy regime changes then actually the people that have to will pay more will be the consumer because actually the supermarkets are, are squeezing farmers too much and artificially subsidising produce out of farmers' incomes and actually the household is going to have to pay more for their goods in the end. No, we, we, we wouldn't agree with that analysis. Um, okay. The bottom line is the cake, the food cake, is the correct size currently other than normal inflationary increases. What we would say is that the farmer needs to get his fair share of the cake. At the minute, too much of the cake is going to the large food retailers and large food wholesalers and uh, next in line is the large food processors. We want our share of that cake and that does not mean that the consumer has to pay any more for the produce. It's just that do remember when it comes to a corporate paying its bills, when it actually makes £5 of profit, all the bills are paid, all the lorries are renewed all the buildings are taken care of, all the, all the wages are paid, including the chief executive salary, etc. So £5, now I'm exaggerating here, a fiver, we're talking about this for an example. The point is, why do they need a billion pounds of profit in the year? That's the bit we're after. But surely, in many cases, the price of produce paid by the consumer on the supermarket shelves is actually less than the cost price, cost the farmer to produce. So... The impact of subsidy has allowed that to happen, so the re elimination of the subsidy will surely mean higher prices for the consumer. Farm incomes are a very complex subject. There's no two ways about it. But um, we, over the years, uh, including other farm organisations that we work very closely with, have taken farm gate prices apart. We've re-examined them, we've pushed it this way, pulled it that way. And you go round on a circle with it, but you still come back to the same conclusion. As I said in the beginning, it's no accident that you know the price to the farmer would need to move by about 40% to allow him to even break even, not to mention being able to make some profit. 
still comes back to this fundamental principle that too much money is going to the corporates. I mean, banking, if ever there was a case in point, and look where the greed took them eventually. So uh, we're not going to stand back and let the corporate food retailers and wholesalers and others get to that point, as they are currently trying to do between takeovers, one buys another over to make them bigger so that they can um, grab more of the market and control more of it. It's all about it's all about controlling the food money. So it's time for the farmer to take charge of controlling the money that he is entitled to. And if that means that we have to do it by legislation on farm gate prices, then so be it. But just to clarify this point, because I think people might struggle a bit with this, uh, I am struggling a bit with this, you are saying that the elimination of subsidies doesn't necessarily mean that there will be higher prices on the shelves, but the implication of that would be that supermarkets are essentially loss-leading in terms of artificially reducing the price of a lot of uh, food products, and therefore the supermarkets will have to take a cut in profits in order that... In okay. Look, the, the, I, I take your point. Let me clarify. If your local large supermarket decides to use milk as a loss leader, fine, but do it out of their profits, not at the expense of the farmer supplying them. William Taylor, thank you very much indeed. The Hollywell Street is coming back on Wednesday, May 9th. Join us at the Hollywell Trust building for a different kind of night out. As we serve a meal, you'll hear from four community-based projects who will pitch their ideas for the chance to win the money collected at the door. Places are limited, so purchase your ticket from the Hollywell Trust building in Bishop Street or online with eventbit.co.uk. The Hollywell Stew, 7pm on Wednesday, May 9th. I hope to see you there. I'm talking now with Kamal Scarpello, who is a director, founder of the family business uh, Scarpello's that is uh, a well-known bakery operating out of Newton Cunningham but with business customers, clients in Derry and around Derry and we're speaking in a rather noisy restaurant the Gap Cafe in Bridgend which in fact is one of Kamal Scarpello's customers, clients who can get their their bread here quite often. Um, Kamal, thank you for speaking with us. Um, Describe for listeners please a bit about your business. Well, um, our business is a small sourdough bakery, um, distinctively so, as, it, as that is our main product. So it's long ferment, fermented breads um, that, that uh, use very few ingredients. So that's our key product. Um, no additives, <clears throat> no improvers, no, nothing else apart from flour, water, sea salt, and then natural ingredients. That's all that goes into our product. So... That's what defines us as a, as a bakery, really, um, because there are many different types. Um, and, and my perception is that it's a business that's doing well. You're, you've got a popular product, and you seem to have a lot of clients, both in Donegal and in Derry. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's certainly we're, we've been, you know we've got busier every year since we started, which is now we're into our seventh year. So every every year there's been an increase, um, and I always say. Um, it's, it's obvious to me that it's been a very small increase each year, but that's that's it's also a manageable one. So it's one that has happened kind of naturally without us forcing it too much. We've never gone looking for customers generally come to us, you know. And um, so yeah, it's you know it's I, I like to think it's safe in that way because it's grown you know in that in that fashion rather than being overfinanced or, or forced or. Uh, 
It's, go, it's grown organically, selling inclusively um, organic products, in fact, yes. Yeah, organically is that word. I was trying not to use it because it, it, it's overused at times, but it's, um, yeah, it definitely is. It's, a, it's, a, it's been an easy thing to do. You know, it's, it's not, now, you're based in Newton Cunningham, and you've got a lot of business clients on the dairy side of the border. So, so what does the border mean to you as a business at the moment? Well, um, because it's so close to us, it's, it's always been, it's our, it's our doorstep basically, it's just, it, it makes no difference to us whether which side of the border we are when we cross over every morning from, you know, over in Calais or, or um, at, at Bridgend, it's, there's it, no difference to us. So it is, because it's only 10 kilometres away, it's very much, it's very much our, um, still our home as well, which is, um, which is why we, we've, We've always seen it as a as a potential customer base, and it's increasingly so. It's becoming <clears throat> it is becoming more. Um, it's you know it's becoming busier from the, the dairy side from the northern side as time goes on. Now the thing is, of course, I mean the border itself doesn't make a difference to you, but currency currency does. And uh, I, have you been able to increase your prices on the dairy side? I mean you, you know because sterling effectively devalued by 15% once we had the Brexit decision. What's that done for your business? Well, again, I sort of back to what I said earlier, it, because we haven't, we haven't grown in such large amounts each time, we've been able to manage that. And we actually haven't put our price up, which is an answer to your question, we haven't put our prices up in, in sterling for, since, um, for a good number of years, really, when, once we found our sort of level where we should be. Um, we haven't, and we certainly haven't. I've been, try, I've been trying very hard not to mess around with currencies too much because it's, it fluctuates far too often, and to change that often would be confusing for, for us and for our, for our customers. But um, we, so we try and have a fixed price in in sterling and a fixed price in euro, and try not to have to make that change. The only time we have to do that is when we we're selling directly ourselves, which isn't very often. So um, we, you know, for, for all of our wholesale customers. Generally, there's a there's a fixed price, and that hasn't that hasn't as yet changed. I hope it. I hope we can keep it as it as it is. But so effectively, it just meant that you you it cut into your profits. Probably has you know somewhere along the way, but we try and keep. You know, we have we have accounts both sides so that we don't have to change too often. But as we get bigger, that's going to be unavoidable. You know, as um, as we have to bring over you know money to, to one side or another in order to you know to, to, to fund one side or another whether it's wages or whether it's purchasing ingredients or, or you know it has to come out of one or the other so if it's if it's too heavily in one direction then we will you know eventually we'll have to take the hit on the exchange ourselves in which case you know when that happens obviously we'll we will um, we'll have to look at, at where we are you know whether we've got the right balance of price from euro to sterling and whether we need to change that and where do you buy your ingredients from? Which side of the border? Well, flour being our main ingredient, that, that comes, uh, we, we've always, from the beginning, we've had a good relationship with a, um, a, a small, relatively small miller in Gloucestershire called Shipton Mill. And we, we get that sent from them, so obviously that's, that's in sterling. So we've, um, we also buy some, we, we have, now got some suppliers for flour as well in this in the south of Ireland. They themselves bring in from uh, some from the UK, some from France, other places. But you know, flour is an important thing to us, so I have to make sure that the um, that, that the, the integrity of that stays 
uh, of paramount importance. So it's not as easy as just changing from one to the other. Once you have a good relationship with, with a, a, a mill like that, it's, it's hard to let go. So you know, that is going to be a future problem, no doubt. And, and is it that you've sourced uh, a supplier in the south of Ireland specifically because of Brexit in order to cover yourself in case there are difficulties importing from Gloucestershire? Well, it wasn't... It certainly had it had crossed my mind that it would be a good thing to, to, to build up a relationship with another company. But it just so happened that they they also were starting to bring on a, um, a, a quality of flour that would have been you know something that would be interested in. So um, that said, you know we have worked that we've realised that we we can't use that product solely you know on its own. We we, we, we do try and use it as much as we can. Uh, but we, we still rely very heavily on, on shipping milk, obviously. And, it's, uh, and what other planning have you done for Brexit? I mean, are you concerned that it could uh, disrupt your customer base? That actually, you know, if there is a hard border there, you may not be able to reach your clients? Yeah, I mean, that's if there's a hard border there, it's a problem for everybody. That's, that's, that's without a shadow of a doubt, that's going to be a big, big problem. But um, there's only so much planning we can do as far as... You know we can't we can't put a halt to our, our um, increasing sales in in the north of Ireland. You know just in case I, I I'm I suppose when I when I ask myself that question I'm 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 a little bit more optimistic in that I think I think the fact that this this hard border situation I think is going to be of paramount importance as uh, as to whether whether there's a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit and and I, I think. You know, it seems to be that they, I, I don't honestly believe that they can they can go and put a hard border back where it used to be and not incur uh, or create you know, massive problems um, down the line. You know, I, I just think it has to be avoided at all costs. So I, I'm optimistic that they're going to come to. As time goes on, there's going to be some sort of um, softening of. Of stance there, and also, you know, that that people, will, certain people, will, will come to their senses. There may be a change of um, change of leadership, which which has a different view uh, in the UK. I'm I'm certainly hopeful of that. Now, whether that happens or not, I just think that they 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 they'll have to avoid a hard border of some. You know, they just have to. It has to happen. So, you know, for us, if if it were to happen, it'd be catastrophic for for everybody, not only us. So the knock-on effect from from um, you know other businesses that, that rely more heavily on on you know, cross-border uh, um, traffic, uh, the knock-on effect to the economy would be more damaging to us than the actual you know the actual us not being able to get over that easily, I suppose, because we're not not a big company that's that's um, heavily reliant. We have you know we have a nice balance of customers on both sides. So, how often do you cross the border in your business? Oh, every every day that we. That we um, that we bake, uh, and you know we crossed the border for, for other reasons as well. Of course, like I said earlier, it's part of everyday life. Is crossing the border. We, we you know we always have. So, uh, but from a business point of view, we, every every day we've deliveries every day into into dairy from Donegal. But very broadly, your planning is the hope that the hard border something doesn't happen. <laughs> well, it's. Like I said, there's not an awful lot we can do. I mean, you know, I can't turn customers away. I mean, it seems to be the only thing I can do. But as far as the products are concerned, and the, the things that we buy in uh, in the UK or in Northern Ireland, uh, that's you know that's something that you know we 
we, I would, you know, I would have to, I would have to make some hard decisions there. I think as far as that's concerned. But <clears throat> I mean, I don't think even the hardball is not going to stop us from getting over. Now, it's the tariffs that that, that may incur, which which could be a, a big issue for our customers. Um, I just, you know, I suppose I'm just, I can't. I would hate to think that they would. That have you have you have you looked at what the tariffs would be on your product? No, I haven't actually. I haven't. That's because nobody knows. I mean, you couldn't ask anybody that question and tell you tell you what it's likely to be. The only, you know, the I mean, this they've already talked. At the very least, there's going to be a transition period where, where, effectively, the the, the two. Um, you know the two, the two VAT or, or tax levels remain um, on an equilibrium between the north and the, and the south in order to, to, to have no change for several years. And this, this is why I hope that you know eventually there'll be a you know there'll be a softening and a, and a, and a moving away from from this um, the potential of a hard border uh, because it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Thank you very much, Kamal. I will remain a loyal customer, whatever happens, I'm sure. Thank you very much indeed, Kamal. Thanks, Paul. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Paul's interviews with William and Kamal, and thank you very much to both for taking part in those interviews. Um, so, Paul, time for our Brexit question. This month, we've been in, uh, we've had a query on around the reciprocal cross-border healthcare arrangements after Brexit. That's right. Yes, there was a lot of interest uh, in our last podcast. We uh, predicted that uh, people may have. Uh, difficulty with European health insurance cards in future, the, mm-hmm. the eHICs, or they were previously known as the E111s. And basically, it means that if you go on holiday, you can use the European healthcare system within the European Union without any extra charge. Okay. And uh, people were concerned that I was explaining that, uh, according to the Irish government's uh, website, the eHICs are issued to people on the basis of their residency, not on the basis of their nationality. So if you live in the UK, you're entitled to an EHIC to free treatment elsewhere in the European Union when you're visiting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, if you're in the Irish Republic or somewhere else in the EU, you've got free treatment inside the UK. Um, as far as we know, those arrangements will not continue after we have left the European Union, but right. with some exceptions. Uh, one of those exceptions is if, for example, you live in Spain and you're a UK resident, then if you're already living there, sorry, if you're a UK national, then, then you will continue to have your right to use the European health insurance card. Similarly, someone from Poland or Spain who's living within the UK will continue to be entitled to free healthcare treatment here after we've left the European Union. Okay. But it is possible... And the European Parliament, as we've discussed earlier, has, has indicated it wants this to be the case. It is possible that they will negotiate a solution whereby we will still have the potential use of the European Health Insurance Card. But as things stand, it looks as if even if you are an EU 
um, passport holder, you won't necessarily be able to use an eHIC going on holiday in the future. So, you know, okay. you're going to have to rely on the travel insurance. Right. Okay. Well, I hope that clarifies that. And but I there is an, that's but going there to is, be... Yeah, there's another issue, though, Gerard, as yeah. well, which is that there's, there's two elements of free health care available to people who are present are UK um, citizens. Um the the second is that if you're on a long waiting list for the NHS, and I know mm. some people in Derry have have used this uh, facility, you are entitled in some circumstances to get free healthcare elsewhere within the European Union under the single market rules. Right, and that won't apply after we leave the European Union. You you will lose that right, except if you are currently receiving treatment and your treatment has not been completed, then you will be entitled to free continuing health care until you end that treatment right okay does this apply to the relationships that we have on the island in regards to like cancer care and um, heart surgery and things like that that where there are those cross-border relationships or you haven't looked at that yet now just well we, we, we no I mean I have looked at this I mean the, the answer is we don't know but we okay. can guess I mean, it would make absolutely no sense once we've just had the Art McGalvin Cancer Centre open on the basis of it being available to both sides of the border. Mm. And when we've just had agreements that uh, the heart surgery for children in Dublin is open for children in the north, it would make absolutely no sense if those arrangements were lost. So I think we can assume that they will continue, but we don't know the detail of how those cross-border healthcare operations will work in the future. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for... Uh, your hard work on preparing this as usual. Just to remind people that they can always ask a question of Paul on any aspect of Brexit simply by emailing brexit at hollywelltrust.com and we'll try and get it dealt with in one of our future podcast episodes. Paul's Brexit blog will be in the Dairy Journal this week and will appear on the Dairy Journal website and the Hollywell Trust website as well. So keep an eye out for that. And as always, feel free to subscribe, share, Tell your friends, uh, we'd love more people to be listening to this. And we hope you enjoyed the show today and listen on again next month. Talk to you soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Team.